welcome to PD in a Pod, where we will help you unlock the best strategies to create proactive schools. Join our hosts, Stacy and AT, as they journey through the latest professional development topics in education. This podcast will provide practical strategies for building culture, designing engaging lessons, using data to drive instruction, and developing multi-tiered systems of support for every student. Welcome to PD in a Pod, the podcast where we talk about proactive teaching and learning solutions. I'm your host, Stacey Owens-Helms. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm going to be joined today by A.T. Nelson. He is former school administrator, former NASA engineer, and current uh, new publisher. He has, He's written a book there, folks. It, the book is Proactive Schools, a step-by-step guide to uh, data-driven instructional cycle. So today in our uh, time together, hi, A.T., how are you? I'm doing fine. How about yourself, Stace? I am so well. So I know we're talking about something near and dear to your heart, my heart as well, and it's success criteria. So um, I'm looking forward to just outlining what it is and what it isn't um, for teachers and that they can really jump into the power of success criteria. So let's start off with a bang. Why don't you give me a good definition? What is success criteria for teaching and learning? Well, when we think about the standards, the standards have skills, uh, concepts, and context um, embedded mm-hmm. in them. Every standard has that. Uh, right. Remember, a standard is just an official statement about what students need to know and be able to do. Um, but because it is an official statement, um, it was written primarily for adults. Um, right. And as adults interact with that standard and they deconstruct it, they pick it apart, they should develop a certain sense of clarity around what the standard is really asking kids to do. Um, but even a mo- even when they get that clarity, it's still almost like an end goal. You know, we call mm-hmm. it a learning target when we say target. this is the end goal or target that we want uh, students right. to hit. And so our teaching and learning should be aiming toward that target. The issue, though, is when we think about uh, the standard, the standard simply tells us the end goal, but it doesn't tell us how to get there. It would be equivalent Mm -hmm. to saying that, you know, I'm going to wake up this morning and I want to go shopping and I want to try (laughs) out this new outlet mall, um, but I have no clue where it's at. (laughs) So I know I don't want to go to an outlet mall, but I have no clue where it's at, right? Right. Um, The chances of you actually reaching that outlet mall (laughs) that you don't know where it's at um, it's slim to none. Slim to um, none. Right. So we first have to know where that outlet mole is. We got to know that where it's located. And then we have to know the step-by-step prog- process we're going to use to get there. So okay. success criteria is nothing more, nothing less than a checklist of steps that a student needs to take in order to get from where they are to arriving to the learning target, to that target they're trying to reach. Some people will refer to success criteria as learning steps. If you can think about like steps on a, on a staircase that mm-hmm. you have that build one builds after the other. And as you're going up that staircase, you're going close, you're making yourself getting closer, excuse me, getting closer and closer to the top of that staircase. And if that top of the mm-hmm. staircase represents your end goal, then those steps along the way are the scaffolds you need in order to arrive at that top goal. Now think about that example right. of a staircase. Most times a staircase takes you to another floor, and it's difficult to get to that floor without the stairs. That's why they're there. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so for our students, they have difficulty reaching another level of learning without the proper scaffolds, the proper steps to get there. It is the difference between the what and the how. So when we're thinking about success criteria for our students, we have to create it with our students in mind. Our students really drive how our success criteria should look, how it should feel, how it sounds. It mm -hmm. is the subjective part. And it's okay for a little teaching and learning to be subjective. The standard is not really subjective at all. It is, says what it says. It, we deconstruct it. Those are the skills. Those are the verbs. It says what it says. But the pathway, the pathway to get from where students are to where they need to be can vary mm -hmm. from teacher to teacher, classroom to classroom, school to school, district to district. Those things can vary. So that's the subjective part because it should be based on student needs. Success criteria should be based Ooh. On our students' student need. need. Yeah. Think about it like this. You know, I, you, I've, I've been in these districts before where success criteria has gotten so popular that they literally mm -hmm. put it on the district pacing calendar. Like if you go to like right. the district yeah. plans or district curriculum, yeah. and you'll see the success criteria there. And teachers will ask me all the time, the success criteria is right there. I don't, I don't, well, it's right. right there. We already got the learning steps. I don't need to do anything else. And right. I have to ask them, does those learning steps that the district wrote match right. the kids that you have in front of you, mm -hmm. right? Like, does True. it match? Absolutely. So it may be a good place to start, but mm -hmm. it may need to be refined so that it matches where our students are. Because in my class, we can't start at the district level. There are some right. other scaffolds that I need to put in place in order for us to get to where we need to go. So every classroom is different, right? Right. And so it's not a one size fits all statement is what you're telling me. It's not a one Absolutely size fits all. Absolutely. Okay. So I, I've seen this, you've seen this, we got into the classroom and it says, I can compare <laughs> two texts. I can tell, tell me your feelings or gut. Is that, is that helpful to learners in this process? Well, when we think about success criteria and just the idea of a checklist, um, mm -hmm. You know, why it exists, where does it come from? Um, right. We have to think about how uh, checklists are used in other oh. industries. Um, okay. Checklists are not only used in this area called success criteria for students, but it was used during World War II. Uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers introduced a safety checklist for pilots mm. in order to right. reduce the risk of fatal errors in flying the, uh, the B-17 bomber. Um, a uh, Harvard uh, School of Public Health, the WHO organization and the Harvard School of Public Health, they use the checklist to help reduce the number of fatalities during surgeries. And when you oh, wow. better believe when those doctors were in those operating rooms, they weren't saying, I can, you know, transplant <laughs> a heart. I a heart. can <laughs> stitch up the patient properly. That's not what they were saying. Um, to okay. The we, okay. we have to be very careful. The reason I tell that story in jest is that we have to be careful with I can statements. Okay. I can statements can actually imply to a student that they should be able to do something that they actually can't do. Mm. Um, yeah. I can statements should be um, should should be at the end of the learning. Um, see, at the beginning they can't. Otherwise, why would you be teaching it? Um, so yeah. when we think <laughs> sure. about when we think about it as a reflective statement. What I ask for uh, teachers to do when they're working with students is to ask the kid, can you or can you not, right? And okay. if the answer is that I can't, 
then we have students a lot of times in our classrooms repeating in core responses. I don't know if you've seen this, Stacey. I've been in classrooms yeah. before yeah. where the, the students will literally repeat, I can do math. I can. And you know what right. they're thinking in their brain? They're thinking, I can't do I that. Can't <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so we yeah. have to think about what are we doing to the psyche of our children when we're having them repeat in core response things that they cannot do as if they can. That is not good teaching. So we have yeah. to be very careful here that we want to make sure that we're fostering positive social emotional growth. We have to make right. sure that we're fostering productive dispositions. Um, that's how the kid feels about the content. And if we're having them repeat that they can they can do something that they know within themselves that they can't, then we could be potentially um, traumatizing the student to a certain degree. So I've asked teachers that are in that situation and they want to use um, success criteria in this way to just take the I can off, just remove the I can and keep the rest of the success criteria statement. Okay. If you do that, then students can use it as a reflective piece. Imagine a checklist, okay. anchor chart sitting in the room, they can go through that checklist. And for those things that the student can do, the student just checks off, I can do those things. And wow. for those students that the student, those things that the student can't do, well, then he puts a little question mark by those things right. and he knows he needs to seek help for that. That way right. you get student ownership out of the success criteria. It's not just a statement that we make, that we make and correspond right. to the learning objective for the day. I know I, really I probably like got, got to some teachers with that one, you know, because there's a lot yeah. of teachers out there that I've seen it yeah. that do those I can statements. And I, you know, just make sure you're using them correctly. You know, if you're doing them in choral response, you could potentially be traumatizing kids. I'm not suggesting just throw them away, but just be very careful right. with how you use them. I think that's really good advice. Um, I almost think you could use that in that growth mindset term saying, okay, so these are things that I can do after today's learning. And these are things that I'm still working on for tomorrow's learning. Exactly. So, um, just giving students that ownership and that grit and saying, you know, I'm coming alongside you because I'm your teacher coach and we're going to get you there. I, I, I think that's much more realistic and mm -hmm. um, responsive. And just that student efficacy is pretty awesome. So um, so now I'm seeing the importance of this. So do we have the success criteria for everything we do for every day? How often are we are we posting it, using it? Is it reusable? Tell me all of the importance of success criteria. That's a big question, I know, but. Right, well, the in. success criteria should be aligned to the standards that are gonna be taught during a unit of study. Okay, um, unit. And a unit of study being inclusive of all the standards, both the priority and supporting or the tabletop and leg standards, as I call them in right. my book. Um, it needs to be inclusive of all of the standards that are going to be taught in that unit of study. And that is a sticking point as well, because some teachers, some schools even, are creating success criteria for each standard. Um, right. And so there is a different list of criteria for each individual standard. The okay. issue with that is that we have so many standards to teach that if we had a different list for each and every standard, then we would never get mm -hmm. through the list. So right. I've always recommended that teachers look at integrating the success criteria in the same way that you integrate a unit of study, meaning when you go into okay. a classroom, most teachers don't teach one standard at a time. Uh, right. Most teachers are teaching more than one standard at mm -hmm. a time. 
So then your success criteria should be reflective of more than one standard at a time. In other words, it should okay. be integrating the entire set of standards that you're going to be teaching for the unit of study. So with that in mind, I ask teachers to first build their tabletop and their leg standards and then okay. to write their success criteria for that whole table, right? Write it for all the okay. priority and supporting standards all at once. And then you're going to chunk those according to the, the sequence that you're going to teach them. So you okay. have it all now in front of you for the whole unit, but you're not going to necessarily give it all to the kids in one day. So you're going to break that up into pieces so that here's the success criteria for the first lesson. Here's the success criteria for the second lesson and so on. But ultimately, it's going to add up to the entire success criteria that you need for an entire unit of study. Wow, I really like that. And it makes it much more doable. Um, yes, teachers layer standards all the time. We integrate, mm -hmm. I call it the spinach and the muffin. You do as much as you right. can and you go as deep right. as you can. Um, we don't teach in isolation. That's not how it works mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in the classroom. So I really like that. Mm -hmm. So you just connected it now. So how does that success criteria connect to all aspects of teaching and learning? I mean, can we, I almost see a success criteria for some of our PBIS. I almost say, you know, you are successful right. when you. Right. Absolutely. You know, state it out. I, I, I just feel mm -hmm. like this could be powerful everywhere, not just, you know, reading uh, context clues or, or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, I, mm -hmm. I think of this as being really powerful. So talk right. more about how it connects everywhere. Well, it connects to everything we do. When you think about, uh, as I mentioned in, uh, earlier, you know, we, they used it to help pilots fly, fly safely in World right. War II. And, you know, and if they used it to help, you know, surgeons, you know, keep our, our patients alive, then clearly it applies to everything, right? So right. if I'm trying to plan a trip um, and go on vacation with my family, I can create a checklist of tasks and things that I yeah, need to do, do between now and then. Yeah. Right? And we all do that. We all use checklists. And so there's nothing to be ashamed of if you're creating right. checklists for your kids, <laughs> nothing at all. Um, but let's talk about the power of that checklist once you have it created. Um, right. There's power not just for the teacher. Yes, the teacher now has a better understanding of how kids are going to progress from the beginning of the unit to the end of the unit, and they have a checklist mm -hmm. of things that they need to know and do in order to arrive at that end goal. And that's a wonderful thing for teachers to have. Um, but the power, the power is when it's in the hands of the students. Um, yeah. When it's in the hands of the students, now the students have ownership and they can they can use that to guide their own journey. They can know what the end looks like. They can know where they are and they can know the steps along the way to actually arrive at that end goal. But when that is in their hand, now it applies to all aspects of teaching and learning. Think about it. We started with the standards and when we deconstructed them, we created the success criteria as a roadmap of how the students are going to get from where they are to mastering the standard. Uh, but mm -hmm. in order to assess where they are, we have to give them some type of assessment formatively, formatively, I hope, uh, to determine what they know and what they don't know as it relates to the standard. So how do we evaluate their progress with the standard? Well, we use the success criteria. We success. give them an assessment okay. and we literally use that same checklist when we're getting ready to grade. We check off the things on the assessment that they were able to do on that success criteria, and we put a little X or circle the ones that that they were not able to do um, on that assessment. And then that gives us a very straightforward way of looking at that assessment, not as a final grade with a circle, you know, around it. I don't know why we always right. circle the score at the top, but, um, you know, not with the final <laughs> grade with the circle on the top. Um, but instead, we can say, students, this is the skills and concepts that you did well on, and here are the mm -hmm. skills and concepts that you still need to work on. So when you're using success criteria in that way, 
communicating grading to students changes dramatically because instead of communicating to them the score they got, you're communicating to them the skills they still need to work on. You see how that's a big difference? Um, So now as a student, I'm honing in not on my grade, but I'm honing in on the specific criteria for success that I did well and the criteria for success I still need to work on, okay? And now let's talk about data analysis. We always always talk about, well, we got to have these data teams and data meetings where we come together (laughs) and we start looking at student work. Well, just imagine if you just had a checklist of things that a student needed for proficiency, and that's what you're looking at. So you're sitting in your meeting with your data meeting, and you're going through the data, and all you're simply asking each other is, which of the success criteria that our students do well on? Which of the success criteria do our students still need to work on? And what strategies can we do to help them get better at the ones that they are still working on? So I'm using the success criteria to guide even the conversations when I'm having data analysis. How is that powerful? That's powerful because a lot of times data analysis tends to label students, does it not? Here are the Mm -hmm. kids that are below proficient. Here are the kids that are above proficient. What we're saying is that if you run your data meetings based on success criteria, then you're not labeling kids. You're simply saying these are students that are performing well with this success criteria, and these are students that are not performing well with this success criteria, and now we can work on with both sets of those students. So it's powerful. And now let's talk about instruction. If you're actually in the classroom during the teaching and learning experience, how powerful is it while a student is working on an assignment to look up at the board or look at an anchor charter, to look at their interactive notebooks and see a checklist of things that they need in order to be successful right. with that lesson? How powerful is that? So when you think about standards, when you think about assessments, when you think about data analysis, when you think about instruction, success criteria becomes that thread that interweaves all aspects of teaching and learning. So it becomes the core um, of what we do in order to help kids see where they are, where they need to go in order to be successful. Yeah, I just think it's like that backbone that runs through everything. And and when you have that established, and once that comes out from your standards right initially, and then in through your instruction, all the way through that assessment. I almost think this reminds me of that story when you say, when you go into a classroom and you know, observations or observers come in and admin comes in, asks that one student, hey, what you working yep. on? And then <laughs> right. the student, how powerful, how exciting would it be if my student said, hey, I'm right here in this part of the success criteria, I'm on exactly. my way to, and I just, right. I, I'm working right here. I just think that would be, that'd be so mm-hmm. awesome if our kids, yeah. if our kids knew it, because that's, that's really when I feel success is when my kids can establish that for themselves and then articulate it for themselves. No doubt about it. When you think about that ownership of student learning being transferred over to them, that's what every teacher wants Mm -hmm. is for the student to begin to be a captain of their own ship and to direct their own learning journey. And the success criteria becomes a tool for that student to be able to do just that, right? So (laughs) is there a certain number of items you would put on the success criteria? Because I'm thinking, is this list exhaustive of 15, (laughs) 25, 30 things or, or... is there ever a rule when you're when you're developing this? Is this how, how do you keep this? Like you said, if it's a unit of study, so I'm just my teacher brain just kind of going off right there. How, you know, can you can you give me a can you riff me off a real quick example of one? Any chance? Sure. I mean, when you think about success criteria, we can use an example like uh, you know my grade three ELA example that I use in the book is compare and contrast uh, important points and key details into text. Um, And then from there, we deconstruct the standard, we come up with the success criteria, and the success criteria might read, annotate the text, 
identify the important points, identify the key details. Um, It might say, uh, uh, um, describe how the points are alike, Uh, describe how the points are different, Um, include key details in your response. Something just that simple. Okay. We'll tell the student exactly what they need to do when they're going to compare and contrast important points and key details. So the list doesn't have to be long. The list just has to be clear um, so that they students know exactly what those steps need to be. Now, with that being said, I've always been I've always been asked, uh, often been asked, um, you know, is this too long? Like, is this success criteria too long when teachers are are creating it themselves? And I've always said there's no such thing as success criteria that's too long. If it takes, uh, you know, 90 steps to get to the end goal, then it just takes 90 (laughs) steps to get to the end goal. Um, The idea is that the students are not necessarily going to see all 90 steps in one day anyway. Um, The 90 steps refer to all of the steps that are needed in order to reach the end of learning, which could be the end of a unit, end of a quarter, end of a semester. I'm not quite sure how many learning steps are needed. That's up to the teacher. And it's it's dictated a lot by the standard. Um, And so what I say is then, okay, we know we have to chunk that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to take those 90 steps and maybe we're just going to do 10 a day. You know, um, so the idea is that we're going to make sure that we're creating bite sized pieces and chunking it okay. in such a way that students are progressing. But we need to start with the big list because the big list tells us what learning looks like in the end and how students are going to get there. And then we order and sequence it in such a way that the kids can actually get it done. That ordering and sequencing is called a learning progression. So we create a learning progression and learning progression is simply taking the success criteria that you created, chunking it and sequencing it in the order that instruction is going to take place. Perfect. I think that my visual picture, it goes back to your stair steps when you were talking yeah. about in the very beginning. So if right. you've got 90 um, different components or steps, then you've got, mm-hmm. you know, your steps or your learning chunks all the way on that on that stairs and that progression exactly so, exactly okay so my brain goes back there well okay i think i've got a better more clear picture of success mm-hmm. criteria i'm not using i can until they can so as a more reflective <laughs> tool i think that's smart mm-hmm. um and I, I think that's good i hope our listeners are, are getting to really hone in on that picture of what good success mm-hmm. criteria looks like so Thanks for sharing that today. Um, Okay, dad joke time. What you got? Dad joke. Oh, gosh, dad joke. Um, So my wife's and I's favorite food um, Mm -hmm. is Indian. I know a lot of folks don't know, like, that's one of our favorite foods to eat. Um, And so this, there is this Indian restaurant that, um, that we go to all the time. And Mm -hmm. they are so secretive that we had to sign a legal agreement uh, that we wouldn't share the flatbread recipe. Um, but it was just their okay. standard non-disclosure agreement. Okay, non-disclosure, non-bread, I get it. Okay, non-bread, Indian food, non-disclosure. Just their standard non-disclosure, yeah, yeah. Non-disclosure agreement, okay. And with that, I'm gonna thank our listeners and our viewers for turning into, tuning in to PD in the Pod. We appreciate you. Um, we hope you learned a little chunk about success criteria and how to best help your students on their road to success. Thanks so much, AT, for joining us today. Um, appreciate you and all that you have brought to teaching and learning. Um, listeners, please uh, share this content with somebody you think it'll be valuable for. We appreciate you and hope you will click and share with others in the education world. Thanks so much. 
Um, subscribe to our media channels. Thanks for now. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us for this episode of PD in a Pod. Now, head over to our website where you can access all of our podcast uploads, schedule a consultation, and check out our resources. As always, don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues.